0: The title for today's talk is Mind as Mirror. Both today's talk and yesterday's talk are concerned with getting behind appearances. Including getting behind whatever lies behind the fictions that we construct. In fact, yesterday's talk was called, the title was, Behind Appearance. The difference between these two talks is that while yesterday I dealt primarily with the path to get behind appearances, our primary, in primary interest today is in recognizing when we get there. Both talks also differ in the metaphors I'm used, using. Yesterday, for those of you who are here, yesterday I used as a basic metaphor these Russian doors that are one embedded inside the other, the Matryoshka metaphor and uh, meaning that we tend to look inside to get behind the appearances of the outer doll and then we get the next and the next but every time we examine things we tend to look at things in the same way and yesterday's talk was an encouragement to start looking at things in different ways. Today, I'll use the mirror as a metaphor for the end of the search. And this mirror metaphor is very well entrenched. It's a favorite of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Indeed, there's great similarities between the mind and a mirror at many levels. For instance, both mind and mirror provide us with images of whatever it is that we come in contact with. A contact that truly, in both cases, can be hindered by a variety of interferences. In the case of the mirror, the very obvious interference as I know, when I try to shave, and after taking a bath, is that the mirror is all fogged up, or it may be dirty, maybe mud, muddied somehow. For our eyes for our eyes, something very similar happens. I know, my glasses may be dirty. That's maybe why I don't see well or in fact my eyes themselves, the lens in my eyes may be clouded by cataracts. But when we look into the mind, the issue goes well beyond the mechanism of vision or the mechanism of every and each of the sensory inputs that perceive. I mean, do we see what we see? Does the mind see what we see? What the eyes see? Obviously, there's a whole processing of images, as anybody who studied a little biology knows, you know. Just just a a trivial thing. Images are recorded upside down in the retina, but then reversed again. They're processed in many, many more ways. Do we, likewise with all the senses, do we sense what we sense? Or are our vision, our sensations, distorted by some pollution, not just in in the eyeglasses or in the Lens of the eyes, but in the mind. (coughs) In Pali, which is the language of the Buddha, the polluting factors are called kilesas, often translated as defilements or taints. The main examples of this are greed, hatred, and delusion. So, how do we decontaminate the mind from this? And, and the metaphor of the mirror is rather simply, simple. We wipe it clean, so with the eyeglasses wipe it clean. Cataracts is a little more complicated but straightforward enough. You know, a few months ago I had cataract operation. It's a beauty. The surgeon went with uh, some ultrasound uh, thing, and uh, dissolved my lens, and in its place stuck uh, a new one, an artificial one. Fine. For the mind is more complex, and the, the only method I know for cleaning the mental cataracts, if you wish, this is a practice Is what we do here making ourselves truly present with what is going on bypassing all the pollution that can get in the way and often does get in the way catch our minds um, in, in its motivations, in its trying to distort things for this or that reason. Not analytically, but just having the insight this is what the mind is doing, keeping me from knowing this, keeping me from knowing that. I mean, analytical processes are of course valid too, but in the practice we do it by insight. got to experience firsthand the pain that our greed and hatred inflict on ourselves, let alone on others, primarily on ourselves so- that's what we can experience directly ourselves. And as we come to know that pain first firsthand, although it may not see, be so easy but the obvious move that eventually we discover we can take is to starve that greed starve that hatred not to feed it delusion is a bit more tricky Delusion is um, at times very subtle. We fool ourselves so easily. One one uh, obvious example of delusion is when. Our mind, instead of taking in a match, a close match of whatever it is that we are experiencing, replaces it by a flight of imagination. And, and that this is the rule rather than the exception, is borne out by our language. You know, image and imagination come from the same root. Language knows how we construct our world. And then uh, if we go to the mirror metaphor the iconic role of mirrors in constructing a reality is uh, illustrated by the language that we use to refer to magicians There's guys and women, whatever, who work with mirrors. And they do. And they play tricks. And then there's that beloved story of Alice through the looking glass. You may remember it. I read it as a child and I keep looking at it and uh, being touched by it. Uh, It starts with one day Alice, uh, this is Lewis Carroll's Alice, of course. Alice uh, um, is in her room and she is entranced by looking at the mirror she finds the mirror kind of foggy and she goes and catch it it feels like a soft gauze and with a touch it melts away and she goes across and she goes across to a world of imagination. And of course nothing wrong with imagination and creativity and certainly (coughs) nothing wrong with uh, Lewis Carroll's stories that are Rich and uh, teach us a lot. <coughs> Nothing wrong with that, as uh, in last retre- in the last retreat in Socrates, uh, Raquel called my attention to the importance of uh, creativity. Of course, the only problem with is with using creativity to replace reality as a way of not being with reality, that's all. And, and you know, as was uh, mentioned today in the group number one, two, As we look at ourselves in the mirror we tend to create an image of ourselves such that it contains the I. That is me. It's not just an image, it's me. But of course it's not just in the mirror that we create ourselves. It is in the mirror inside our mind, then we fabricate ourselves. So, in sum, so mirrors are very apt vehicles, instruments for creating, fabricating, sort of delusions things that replace our things as they are. But there is much more to mirrors than that. And that's very much what the teachings have in mind when they talk about the mirror-like mind. Because the teachings invite us to consider an often neglected aspect of the mirrors. Namely, that they do not only reflect, but notice this as a difference, they have the capacity to reflect. If we're only zooming in on the reflection, capacity to reflection. I mean it's just words, but we're we only interested in the reflection. But backtrack a little bit. Just give yourself a moment to consider that the capacity is something very precious and different from they're doing just like consider that our beautiful capacity to love it's it's something more primal than the love itself very difficult not to love as we have that capacity but say we are totally isolated, n- separate from anybody else. And yet our capacity to love others can be a precious thing. So let me reinforces. We are so used to consider the mind only on the basis of thoughts and images that it produces, that we have baffled at the possibility of an empty mind, a mind empty of thoughts or images, even empty of sounds, bodily sensation, Tastes and smells of feelings. Yet, besides all the items that do pop up in our mind, there is a much neglected ground from where they emerge. The ground from where the sounds emerge which is the silence. The experience of silence is something that's available to us, right? It's it's, uh, awesome. But our ordinary mind is sort of hunting after the sounds that come up. We need to pay attention to the ground from where they come and so on with everything else. To realize this ground we need to shift radically our attitude of mind. Stop chasing, at least for a moment, after the items that come up, the sensations or whatever it is, and open up instead to our capacity, which is called Awareness. Uh, Being careful, of course, just by giving it a term, Awareness, not to now create another item. All right, now I have to cultivate Awareness, as as if it was another item. Uh, That's why, indeed, the Buddha has been so careful with his language. He didn't pick up one word that he repeated all the time. He has a repertoire of words to refer to this ultimate experience. Emptiness, voidness, enlightenment, awareness, whatever. Well, awareness is a step in between, but uh, again, mindfulness, whatever. You know, the shifting a little bit but I'm in the same topic. There's a story, a common thing I, I guess, I've, I've seen it happen a number of times. person who's looking desperately for his or her glasses and you look at them and they are wearing them. You know. This is not happening to me now because my glasses are a new thing after cataracts, but, uh, but even, even more pointed. Just try it. Can you see your eyes? I can't see my eyes. Not on a mirror, of course, I can't see them in a mirror. That's uh, indirect. Can I see directly my eyes? That's where all the vision is concentrated. Fabulous. So, by asking you to direct your attention to awareness, to the capability... I'm really asking you to direct your attention to the what lies behind experiences. And, and not to get too theoretical, let me just uh, go down uh, so far as I can a few actual experiences. Uh, there is one that has... Uh, Hit the Internet and the, some airwaves and has uh, been reported back to me by a number of people in our Wednesday group, so that I finally did go to the Internet and read about it. It's about a, a woman called Jill Taylor. Dr. Taylor, a few years ago, had a stroke. Stroke which affected the left hemisphere of her brain. She eventually recovered, but while she was having the stroke, she had an extraordinary experience, particularly extraordinary was somebody trained in the sciences I know that because I was a scientist and these things so are totally inaccessible to me except I unfortunately didn't have a stroke but she did and, and the stroke well it affected dr. Taylor's ability to speak to engage in all kind of of linear, self-referential thinking, of course, let alone science, but anything that was rational, coherent, if you wish. At the same time, she enjoyed a sense of living without any boundaries separating her from anything, as she reports, from anything and from any others. And she felt an extraordinary sense of euphoria, of elation, something that had she had never experienced before. And then the euphoria, or at least the reverberations of that euphoria, so far as I can tell. I don't have full access to the material, some of you may. Um, the reverberations of that euphoria have lasted. Uh, long after the uh, stroke, the effects of the stroke were gone. Now, Dr. Taylor was an ace, a neuroanatomist, and she knows very well, and has worked on, following the work of Roger Sperry. Roger Sperry probably passed away by now I don't know um, is um, the scientist who studied and discovered in fact the polarity of our two brain hemispheres The, the hemisphere being specialized in different tasks the left hemisphere being the side of verbal and linear thinking that's what dr. Taylor lost use of for a while and the right hemisphere being the site of what we could call holistic or and emotional thinking as well this of course and well in in the actual work of Roger Sperry, and I know that because I was at Caltech when he was doing that work, I was studying in the same department in a different area, and uh, is is not a strict compartmentalization, but it's it's broadly speaking holds, but it can be rearranged, and I won't go into those details. Now, Dr. Taylor, when she recalls her experience, she takes it, and I think in a way it perhaps is, takes it as a corroboration of that polarity, because the stroke here and she lost the linearity of her thinking. Fair enough. But I have a problem with the way I hear her speak. I saw a short video of her presentation. Maybe that's not her intention, but the way that it's easily taken up us is that, ah, here's the full explanation of this extraordinary experience. To me, to take it that way is a cop out. Is taking the narrow parameters and, and correct parameters, of course, and great admirer of Roger Sperry, the narrow, but still narrow parameters of scientific explanation to explain something that is goes far deeper than that, goes beyond that. A little bit as I was illustrating yesterday with the Matryoshka metaphor, the Russian doll metaphor, is finding the inner doll as a full explanation of the preceding one. If we really ready to embark in a radical explanation, radical exploration, I should say, of events like the one that Dr. Taylor reports, we also need to go by a radical route. Or to quote again, as I did yesterday, St. John of the Cross, to go into that which we don't know, we have to go by a way which we do not know. So, of course, there is a larger audience to whom the familiar explanations appeal considerably, and that's understandable. And that's okay too, the scientific explanations are not incorrect. They just don't know far enough. And, of course, the fact is that uh, a quite a large number of people had had experiences of that nature without having had a stroke in the left hemisphere. Um, just what came to mind to me is, is, I mean there are many stories of people with enlightenment experiences One, one that came to me recently because I was organizing some bookshelves and I found this little pamphlet that I got in India from a man called U.G., U.G., sorry, U.G. Krishnamurti. No no relative of the more famous J.K. Krishnamurti. And so this man called U.G., at age 49, for no apparent reason, had this extraordinary sort of events happening in his mind and body. at at some point in the narrative that seemed to be traced to a moment when he was shaling. (laughs) I'm not saying that shaling is the way to enlightenment. (laughs) Neither is he, of course. (laughs) And, And in the course of that week, he shifted from a habitual state, as he described to state where all reference point had disappeared. Yet in his case, thinking and speech were totally unimpaired. His understanding was surely enhanced. He was very reluctant to talk about this anyway. Really reluctant. There's others who sort of prompted him to speak but in the little he spoke he described his state and I like the description as a declutched state as if his mind the clutch in his mind connecting the mind to the familiar had been pushed in and he was declutched from that. Now, Mr. UG, UJ, UG, UG, sorry, UG, um, did not practice meditation, by the way. Neither did he recommend anybody to practice meditation. But of course, he comes from India, where meditation is done all over the place. I mean, it's hard to find somebody who never practiced meditation. And it means different things, but anyway. Uh, Yet the practice is for many of us the obvious path to get to that kind of declutched state. And through the practice We first begin to get glimpses of that possibility, moments when that happened and then sometimes it happens in a a really significant way. We, We come to a place that's really beyond words and thought, beyond distinctions and description. That's why it's very hard to find any descriptions of that or even to try to offer any. A couple of months ago I had to talk at uh, New York Insight in New York City and and I thought, let me try to share some of my experiences in sitting. So I, I tried. Mm-hmm. I talked about being touched by such a state while on a month retreat. What could I say? I, I said my, which is true. Is my co- I could talk about things that were gone, like my coordinates were gone. Coordinates in time and space were gone. I mean didn't feel that I was anchored anywhere. At the same time, I had a sense of vibrancy that came from a place I... I don't know. I seemed to be dwelling in a <coughs> space that felt infinite, unlimited... Empty. But basically, uh, that's the problem and the beauty of all of this. You cannot talk about it. So, I felt heartened by the fact that others, certainly most significant teachers than myself, had run into the same difficulties of expressing their experiences. Among them this extraordinary teacher Ajahn Chah from the Thai forest tradition. This is a snippet of what he says. In a book that's not easily available, I had to get it from Sri Lanka. I mean, it, that's interesting. It's hard for him to express it. It's hard to get a hold of the text. He's not publicizing it. Introduction to Ajahn (laughs) Cham. He says, The mind, having inclined inwards, settled down there for as long as it wished. I can't say I understand exactly how it remained there. It's difficult to describe what happened there's nothing I can compare it to. No simile is apt. This time the mind remained inside far longer than it had previously. And only after some time did it come out of that state. When I say it came out, I don't mean to imply that I made it come out, or that I was controlling what was happening. The mind did it all by itself. I was merely an observer. Eventually, the mind again returned to its normal state of consciousness. How could I put a name on what happened? Who knows? What term are you going to use to label it? So, to me, this gets across. Even through all the difficulties that of not being able to be transmitted through words. So, what is this mind that is capable of disentangling, disembroiling itself from the items and the terms of the world, from all the Buddha called, in his language, Nama Rupa, from name and form, such that it cannot even find words to describe what is it like to be in that state? The mirror simile may help us here. Think of a mirror that instead of reflecting the objects around it, by being pointing to an empty space, say, pointing to blue sky, whatever. Wherever there is an empty space, yeah, that's empty enough, right? It reflects nothing. No item. There is no image in the mirror. Yet, the mirror continues to have the capacity to receive and reflect. And th- this capacity is different from the images themselves. And this is also a property of our mind, as I said earlier, the capacity to know. Samyan Jatsu, Samtin Jatsu, the teacher of Tulko Ergen Rinpoche, whom some of you may know of, says as follows. This is from a recent Buddha Dharma. No, three years ago, Buddha Dharma, sorry. The word capacity refers to the unconfined basis for experience. Bells have a, a way of knowing when to ring. As in the moment just before something takes place just before the bells ring. (laughs) I didn't say that. Once the arising has occurred... (laughs) It has. (laughs) We have a dialogue here. (laughs) Once the arising has occurred, it usually has already turned into a thought. Capacity means the basis for that to happen, an unimpeded quality of awareness. This unimpeded quality is extremely subtle in significance. Once you acknowledge this unimpededness, nothing more needs to be done. In this unimpededness, it's impossible to find any subject or object. The analogy for this is a bright mirror a readiness to experience to sorry a readiness for experience to unfold without any preconception whatsoever preconception whatsoever and he goes on One should not identify the capacity with being caught in subject-object and the act of perceiving. An unconfined basis for experience means a readiness, means being able to experience just ready to be, but not yet involved in the dualistic experience of object-subject. If your training is in this readiness, rather than in conceptual thinking, you won't be caught in duality during daily activity. This capacity, in essence, is the unimpedent omniscience of all Buddhas, which is totally unlike the tension that focuses on one thing while eliminating everything else. And of course, as you may notice, this focusing on one thing while eliminating everything else is exactly what I instruct you to do in sitting, when you start sitting. Absolutely true, and I'm sure something um, Giaccio has similar instructions too. The question is, that we do this, the instructions specify this focusing on this or that, in order to train our awareness, so that the awareness then can break loose, so that we can start having had the focus, we can open it up. Not anymore to the objects, but to the ground from where the objects emerge. Not anymore to the sounds, but open up to the silence that lies underneath. And experience the silence, not the idea. Shift the experience from the item to the ground. And this ground of emergence is a space of sheer knowing, of sheer awareness in our mind. Ajahn Amaro puts it really beautiful. Thank you. It's a, he says, it's resting in the knowing that makes the Buddha a refuge. Our knowing nature is invulnerable, inviolable. inviolable. It happens to the body, emotions. What happens to the body, emotions and perceptions is secondary, because Knowing is beyond the phenomenal world. Knowing is the true refuge. Whether we experience pleasure or pain, success or failure, praise or criticism, that knowing nature of mind is utterly serene. It is undisturbed and incorruptible. Just as a mirror is unembellished and untamed by the images it reflects, the knowing cannot be touched by any sense perception, any thought, any emotion, any mood, any feeling. It's a transcendent order. The Zen teachings that's in a different tradition from Ajahn Amaro. the zoxan and teachings say this too. They say, there is not one hair tips of involvement of the mind objects in awareness, in the nature of mind itself. End of quotations. That is why awareness is a refuge. Awareness is the very heart of our nature. Having said this, I don't want to imply that we have to stay locked up there. On the contrary, we come from being permeated by awareness and we function in the world in a different way. Earlier today in the group we had a, a discussion about this and because the question that came up was, perhaps in different terms, but basically, is this refuge then cutting us off from cutting us off from others and from the world and from our feelings? Because in this refuge of pure awareness, it's a pure, limpid mirror, empty. Well, one way to respond to that, more philosophical, but anyway, historically very valid, is what the Buddha said. The Buddha kept this mantra. Form is emptiness and emptiness is it form. It didn't see a duality between items and awareness. We need both. We're trained in the items. There's now give awareness a chance to be appreciated and recognized and be the true and pure refuge that accompanies us. But as we learn to experience our true connection with this capacity called awareness, then we also discover a deep connection that's possible with others and with the world. It's the awareness that makes the images in the mirror possible. The awareness of the mirror, the capacity of the mirror that makes the images possible. So, let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening.